verses 45 through 54. We will be in there the entire time. Some of you have asked me, I thought you were already gone already. You're not going to miss me, I guess, huh? <laughs> Uh, I, this is my last Sunday, uh, starting in about an hour or so. Uh, I will officially be taking uh, five weeks off and uh, taking a sabbatical just to rest and rejuvenate. I announced that last week, but maybe some of you weren't here. I know for Paula and I, we both have had questions from people like, okay, but w- really, why are you taking a sabbatical? <laughs> Did you do something wrong? Probably, I don't know. But are, are you leaving? Um, and the answer to both of those truly is No. In fact, it's the opposite. Our our elder board, who is truly the leadership of our church, recognized the need in me that I just have been tired and that I want to be here for the next 20 years. And so to be able to do that, to just take an extended time off. So uh, over the next five weeks, if you text me, uh, I will not get back to you. I will ignore you. And I'm not sorry about that. I am sorry about that, but I'm not sorry about that. Uh, I really am not going to have my phone with me. I'm going to be really focused on five people in my home that deserve all of my attention that haven't gotten it in a really long time, uh, undivided. So starting this afternoon, I will see you from from this morning. Starting this afternoon, I'll see you in mid-August, okay? But let's turn open to the scriptures because that's the most important thing. Verse 45, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this Happened. This, John is referring to, is what happened in the earlier part of John chapter 11. If you were with us at Easter time, you may remember we taught on the early part of John 11. This was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, he's died. Spoiler alert, uh, Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. But his sisters, they don't know that. Mary and Martha don't know that. And so they come to Jesus with their grief. Jesus responds differently to both sisters, but it's the same side, it's different sides of the same coin. Meaning, in our grief and our pain, Jesus, He comes alongside of us in this way. For instance, with Mary, we read in verse 35 that Jesus wept. What I love about that is that our God isn't far away when we go through hard times. If you were with us last week, the Good Shepherd is with us. Even as we go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. He weeps with us. He is tangibly present in our lives. And that's exactly what he responded to Mary with. But then to Martha, the other sister, he responds with a promise. He says this in verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me will live even After dying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And then he looks at Martha in the eyes and says, do you believe this? It's not just a question for Martha. It's a question for you and I. A question we'll get back to in a little while. But do you believe that after we die in Jesus, we will live? You see, those who were with Mary and Martha during that time saw Lazarus being raised from the dead, and many of them believed, John tells us, but not everybody. In fact, if you have multiple kids, usually you have one of those kids who likes to tell on the other sibling to their parents, always tattling on them. We have uh, a son that does that constantly. Mom, dad, and then he fills in the blank with something that his sisters or especially his brother did to try to get uh, him or the girls in trouble. Well, that's exactly what the other group of people who did not believe what Jesus did, did not accept what Jesus did, did to him. 
We read this in verse 46. But some went to the Pharisees and tattled and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man, meaning Jesus, certainly performs many miraculous signs. Now, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus perform miracles. We don't want to just look at the miracle and say, wow, Jesus is amazing. We want to ask the question, what is that miracle pointing to? Because it's always bigger. It's always more than what Jesus is doing in that moment. In fact, we read in the Greek, our English Greek lexicon of the New Testament, a miraculous sign is a sign, an event, which is regarded as having some special meaning, something which points to a reality with even greater significance. Every time Jesus would heal somebody, every time Jesus defied the laws of nature, it wasn't just about that thing. It was about something else Jesus is doing. That Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven to this earth. This broken, dark earth Jesus is breaking into and saying there's a different reality here that all people can be a part of. And you would think the Jewish leaders at the time who knew the Jewish scriptures would recognize this. I mean, this man, he's performing signs. We read about this. This is the Messiah. This is the one to come and save us. They should be throwing Jesus a party. But they do not do that. We read this in verse 48. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Quickly, they ask the question, what do we do with this guy? And they answer it by making it all about themselves. They say, okay, this guy, he's performing signs. People are going to believe in him. Well, what's that going to do to us? If we don't do something about it, the Roman army is going to come and take us out. If we don't do something about this, they're going to stop following me and the kingdom that we have built, and they're going to follow him. So Jesus becomes a threat to them. And with a threat, you have to take it out. So we read a few verses later in verse 53. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Again, these are the smartest, the brightest. They know the scriptures, and yet they miss out on Jesus as the Messiah. They want to kill the guy. How can that be? Well, you can blame some of it on Caiaphas. Here's what we know about Caiaphas in verse 49. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. Obviously, Caiaphas is a very humble and gentle man. No, he is not. He's very prideful, arrogant, and says, you don't know what you're talking about. See, he's the high priest, which was the biggest position, the highest form of leadership you could have back then for the Jews. And he sat in this position. And as he's thinking about this Jesus who's performing these signs, these miracles, trying to figure out what to do, they say, you have it all wrong. Here's what he says. See, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Caiaphas says, look, here's what we do. We plot to murder this guy. We make it so that no one will worship him, that no one will threaten us. 
That this threat of the army to take us out, we're going to take it out by taking Jesus out. He says, look, if we take him out, that will preserve our nation, our people. We're going to be good. But what Caiaphas doesn't know, and we see this all throughout Scripture. Let me say, we can see this in our lives too. What is meant for evil, God can mean it for good. For we read in verse 52, it says, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God's scattered people around the world. Here's what Caiaphas doesn't know he's doing. He thinks he's speaking about his nation. He wants to take Jesus out to protect his people, but what he doesn't understand is God has a bigger plan because he doesn't want to solve a physical problem for his nation. He wants to solve a spiritual problem for the world. I want to introduce you to a man named Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Polish Catholic priest, and his prison number was 16670. The number that he received and was eventually tattooed on his arm as he entered Auschwitz concentration camp. He's brought in with so many other people who are brutally tortured. And as Colby is there with his own group of people just trying to survive, Around that time, in August of 1941, a prisoner tried to escape. And back then, not only was that punishable for the prisoner, but they didn't want people to think that they can just escape. They wanted to bring fear, even more fear than it's already at the camp, to the people if they even thought about doing it. So what they did was, not only did they punish the prisoner who tried to escape, but the camp commander selected 10 people to also die because of what this man did. As they are selecting these 10 people and they get in this line, this man cries out, I have a wife. I have children. I don't want to die. When Maximilian Colby heard that, something in his heart broke. And so in this line that they are in, where Colby has not been selected of the ten to die, he steps forward. He gets out of line, which to the camp commander, you could be beaten to death for doing that. But he steps forward, and the camp commander sees him, and he asks this question, what do you want, Polish pig? Why did you leave your place? When you know it. The reason why he leaves his place is because he's going to take someone else's. For he says this, I want to take the place of one of the men. He has a family, a wife and children. I am a Catholic priest. I am alone. Normally, if you're familiar with Holocaust literature, you know that normally the guard would not only deny that request, but would also kill Maximilian Colby for nothing. Because you don't ask to do anything. You're told to do something. But for, some, for whatever reason, the camp commander approved the request. And the man that was married with children got to get back in line. Colby went with the other nine men and was killed because of what the prisoner did. And you hear that story. 
you think to yourself, at least I do, I think immediately, would I do that? I mean, I would do that for my wife, I'd do that for my kids, I'd do that for my family, I'd do it for my best friend. I mean, of course. But for some stranger? I don't know if I could. And yet Maximilian Kolbe, in that moment, moment of bravery, moment of selflessness, step, step forward. He said, I want to die in that man's place. And he did. And that man somehow survived Auschwitz, was released, and he lived a good life with his wife and kids until he ended up dying years and years later. When I hear that story, I can't help but think about what Jesus has done for us. You look at the prophet Isaiah, who had no idea he was talking about Jesus, but just like we read with Caiaphas, who was talking about the situation at hand, he didn't know that there was something else going on. Same thing with Isaiah. And he speaks to his people, but what God is going to use that for is to speak to all people. And we read this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he, who would be Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. We were the ones who were supposed to die. And you may say, why is that? Well, someday after we were going to die and there was a perfect God who was in heaven, we couldn't enter heaven on our own because none of us are perfect. None of us are. You may say, I'm not a bad person. And I would say back to you, you're probably not. You're probably a great person, but you're not a perfect person. And thus, because you're not perfect, you can't be in the presence of a perfect, holy God. And Jesus knew that. Jesus steps forward and he says, take me. And on Jesus was laid the thoughts that we would be ashamed of, the actions that we don't want anybody to know of, the past that we want to just leave in the past. He died for our rejection of God because we're obsessed with ourselves. He died when we pushed Jesus to the sidelines and said, we don't need you, we can do it ourselves. All of those things, all of those sins, the rebellion, Jesus was crushed for it. He died for it on the cross so that you and I can live. And not only does he do that, but there's something even better that happened. He exchanges something for us. He exchanges all of the things that I told you for his righteous, perfect status. Because we're still not perfect. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see imperfection anymore. For those who follow Jesus, he sees Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection. And he counts that as the perfection that we need to live for eternity with God. He takes on our crud in exchange. He gives us a crown. All because Jesus stepped forward and said, I, I will take their place. You see, if I had to put this in one sentence that I want you to remember throughout the week, that I want you to reflect upon, because this is a true game changer, it is this. Through the death of one, we have one. 
Through the death of Jesus at the end of the game, when we look at the scoreboard, it's an upset in our favor. We are victorious. We win. Because through the death of one, we have won. Now, why? Why did the Pharisees, why did Caiaphas, why did the other religious leaders miss this? How is it possible? It's right there before them. I mean, we read already in verse 47, this man certainly performs a lot of miracles. They're like, man, this guy's walking around. People are getting healed. He's walking on water. I mean, who is this guy? And you would think they would throw him a celebration. You'd think they would crown him as Lord. But they plot to murder him. Spoiler alert. Their plot ends up winning out in the end. But what they thought was a win, well, it was a loss for Jesus. But it was a win for us. And yet they missed it. And the reason they missed it is because they didn't answer their question the right way. What are we going to do with him? What are we going to do with him? Well, we can either worship him and follow him, or because we think he's a threat, we'll take him and that's what they do. But the question that they had to answer is still a question that remains today. You and I have to answer the question, what are we going to do? Here is Jesus. Just like he said to Martha, do you believe this? You and I have the same question that we need to answer today. Do you believe this? What are you going to do with Jesus? According to this passage, Pastor Stephen Cole says there's three options with Jesus. Three. And right now, you and I fit into one of them. The three options are this. You can reject Jesus, you can control Jesus, or you can follow Jesus. The first, reject Jesus. Caiaphas has the right to say, he is Lord, I will follow him. But instead, he opposes Jesus. He rejects Jesus And of course, Jesus ends up dying on the cross. But he had a choice, and he made the wrong one because he did not want to bow down to him. And there are some of you here today that would say, I have rejected Jesus. Like, he seems like a great dude. He performs miraculous signs, really good teachings, but I don't follow him. And what I would say to you is this, you have the right to do that. You see, love ends up losing its meaning if it's forced upon someone. And so if, if we were forced to love God, if he says to Caiaphas, Jesus is like, dude, you got it all wrong. And then like, he, he does something and then changes his brain. Oh, I believe now. That loses the option of choice. We have free will. Caiaphas exercises it to reject him. And you can too. But here are two things you must realize. One, If you reject Jesus, it's your choice, but it's God's choice to continue to pursue you and show you love and show you himself all the way until you take your last breath. There are things in your life where you're just like, how did that happen? And you say, that's just just my luck. It's just a coincidence. There are sure a lot of coincidences in your life. (laughs) I love Einstein says, eh, Coincidences are God just kind of taking the background route. (laughs) He's hanging out in the background. He's letting other people maybe discover him or not. And you can just say, it was luck. It's a coincidence. After a while, how can you continue to think it's just that? 
that you were in the right place in the right time over and over and over and over and over again. You can choose that. That is fine. But God, by his love, will continue to show himself whether you accept it or not. The other thing is, and you must remember this if you're a logical person. If you're illogical, you can make this argument. But if you want to be true to yourself and true to true logic, you cannot say, the reason I reject God is because God doesn't care about me. You can't say that. Or you're illogical because God, through Jesus, came to this earth and died in our place. Through the death of one, we have one. And you can't say, well, he doesn't care about me. He cares so much about you that he literally took your place so that you could live for eternity. So you can't say that. If you want to reject him on other reasons, you can. But you can't say it because God doesn't care. He cares so much more than you think. Even when you don't care, he cares. But you have the, you have the right to reject him. I won't force you. God's not going to force you. So you get to choose. The other choice that we have is to control Jesus. This is a little bit grayer. And I have a feeling I find myself in this box a lot, and maybe you do. I love what Matt Carter and Josh Redberg says in their commentary in John. They say the religious leader's concern was maintaining control. Their concern wasn't whether Jesus was right or good, but how his actions would affect them. Their concern wasn't about the people. They should be, right? I mean, they're religious leaders. But about themselves. We see in them a clear and striking picture of self-centeredness. The Pharisees want to control the narrative of Jesus. They're afraid of what he can do. So they want to control it in such a way that they come out on top. And you may be sitting here and say, I don't do that. Well, let me put it this way. The Pharisees were the most righteous people. They not only knew the scriptures, they memorized the scriptures. They not only prayed, they prayed in a way you're just like, wow. They not only gave, they gave more than you and I could even fathom. I mean, on the outside, they were great. But God says, I don't know them. They are just using me to get what they want. Listen, there are some of us in this room that are doing the same thing with Jesus. We know we're trying to control Jesus when at the end of the day, we are the one calling the shots and not him. And you may say, I don't think I'm really doing that. Well, you may not be, but let me just give you a couple of ways that you may be. For instance, I control Jesus when I use him to get what I want. Man, we're ready to pray when we need something, when we want something, new job opportunity, the relationship to work out that we would get home and the other potential buyers don't. We go to Jesus for all these things. But when he doesn't get a, give us what we want, in fact, he gives us what he ne- we need because he cares so much about us. Because if we got everything we want, we would be more selfish than we already are. Because he only wants to give us what we need. And, want, and when we don't get what we want, what do we do? We're like, ah, next time. I'll go to God next time. And what do you do? You control. You try to get what you want. It's how we hurt people. It's how we become distant from God. Or we control Jesus when I get angry with him when I have to go through hard times. When you're going through good times, I mean, it's like, man, God, praise you. I'm feeling this spiritual high. You brought this person in my life, gave me this job. I got a raise. 
Everything's going great. You're posting scriptures on Facebook. People think you're just a Jesus freak because you can't stop talking about him because he looks so good on top of the mountain. But when we go through a valley, people don't even know we worship God. In fact, people would probably think, man, you are anti-God. You rejected God by our attitude. Why aren't we putting verses up that say he will use the bad for our good? We don't usually say that. We just get so angry with God because he's not doing what we want. He's not achieving our plan. That we really only worship God when it's convenient for us and when he's nice to us. Every time else, God doesn't exist. He doesn't care about me. He is ignoring me. He has to care about you. He died for you on the cross. He opened his life for you. He cares about you. It just doesn't always look the way that we want it to look. But we control Jesus when that is how we worship him. Or, I control Jesus when I get to pick and choose when or if I care about and help other people. Oh, and by the way, when I do it, I want credit for it too. Isn't it funny? We're the first people to ask people for help. We're the first people to ask God for help. But if someone doesn't help us, we get angry with them. We get bitter with them. We think they're bad people. But then when people ask us for help and we look at our schedules, they ain't going to fit this week or next week. Or if it costs us money or time or resources, whatever that is, we get angry. We get frustrated. We get upset at other people because it's not part of our plan. And then we think, okay, I'm going to do this, but hey, get your phone ready. I'm going to give you my Instagram uh, handle. I want you to tag me in this so everybody thinks I'm a great person. Because really, it's not about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about me. That's you. You don't follow Jesus, you follow a version of Jesus that looks a lot like you. There is a third option, and I'm thankful for this. It's to follow him. And we can follow him because through the death of one, we have won. Now, a lot of times we talk about Jesus is accepting him in our life and we get to go to heaven. It's funny, we go from like now to 50 years from now. What about the 50 years in between? Because Jesus has won, we have won, which means not only do we be with him for eternity, yes, eternity can start now. When we deny ourselves, we pick up our cross, and we follow him. For when we die to ourselves, Jesus says, you will finally, for the first time, live. Because you're following me, and wherever I lead, you will follow, and I'll get you exactly we need to be. And remember, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, even when you're going through that, I will be with you. So you can reject him. You can control him. Or you can worship and follow him. And just like at the end of a championship run, the team that wins, there was a celebration in the locker room. We should be doing that for Jesus. Pharisees missed it. Caiaphas missed it. We don't have to. So take out your communion cups for a moment. When you see in a locker room players rejoicing, players, it's worth it. The sacrifice was worth it. They're spraying champagne. They're going crazy. It's because they won. And through the death of one, we too 
have one. If you don't have a communion cup, raise your hand and we have some greeters walking around that would love to give you one. Take the first layer off. Jesus stepped forward and he said, take me. I will die in your place. His body was broken in half so we could be made whole. Do this to remember Jesus. Push down right on the tab here and pull up. We drink this because through the death of one, we have won. And because Jesus died and bled for us, we can be whole and live forever. Do this to remember Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Have a great Sunday.